get into the sermon today, I'll say just very quickly, um, if there's any more squeaking of my voice, uh, high school football season started on Friday. I'm not a coach, I just have very little self-control, and our team does something great. So, well, this last Sunday, we started a series called How We Got the Bible. This will be a four-week series. And in it, we're looking at the Bible that we have and how it came to be. Now, if you are new here, um, usually we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, um, and and work through those together. This is kind of a break from that where we're working on a a different study for the next four weeks. We're going to add a fifth week to that where uh, we're giving you the opportunity, because we know that this is a lot of material, to submit questions uh, and we'll give you a means of doing that in the next, um, this next week, um, where you can submit questions that we will answer in, or that I will answer in week five of this series, okay? So I'm going to repeat this, what I'm about to say every single week as a reminder. The Bible is not just a book. It is a library of books. It is many books written over a period of more than a thousand years by many different authors from many different cultures and different demographics. And it tells the story of the origins of the Hebrew people, the person and work of Jesus, and the spread of the Christian church. And ultimately, its central character is God, revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The God who creates, the God who rescues rebels, who becomes human and who makes all things new. And for these next weeks, we're going to be covering uh, the compiling of the scriptures, that, that's canonization. It's what we're going to look at today. How, how was it determined which books and letters would make up the Bible that we have today? Next week, we're going to talk about the inspiration of scripture. What does that mean and how should it be applied in our reading or listening to the Bible? And then we're going to look at the authority of Scripture. What authority or what rule does the Scripture have over our lives? What, what rights does it have or should it have over our lives? And how should we approach it? And I want to say here before we get into the texts that we're going to look at today and this topic of the compiling of Scripture, there's going to be a lot of overlap in these next three weeks. It's, it's hard to talk about one of these three things, canonization, inspiration, and authority, without the others affecting the conversation. So there's going to be some overlap, but at the same time, you're going to want some things to be covered, maybe this week, that we're not going to cover until next week, and I would just encourage you to kind of hold on and don't oversleep next week if you want to know those things. Um, So let's get to our text for today and work through that and some other things or other texts as we continue in this discussion. We're going to be, be looking um, to start with today in the Gospel of Luke. So go ahead and turn to Luke 24. We're going to focus on verse 27, but I'm going to read verses 25 through 27 to help us out. And while you're getting there, to just to give some context here, Jesus has risen from the dead. And there are two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus draws near to them, but his identity is hidden from them. They don't know that it's Jesus. 
and they're bummed out. They're devastated, and Jesus asks them what they have been talking about as they're walking. And they've been talking about him being dead. And they're astounded that this man, who they don't know is Jesus, isn't aware of all the things that have taken place. So they, they begin to fill him in, telling him how Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, was delivered up to be uh, condemned to death and that he was crucified. And then how some women amazed them, saying that they went to the tomb, but Jesus wasn't there. And that they had seen a vision of angels telling them that Jesus was alive. And then finally, how some of them had gone to see for themselves and found it just as the women had said. So at this point, Jesus responds to these two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus, and, and that's what we're reading. So go ahead and stand if you're able, and follow along as I read verses 25 through 27 of Luke chapter 24. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Grace that you have revealed in so many ways and continue to lavish upon us. And Lord, we confess that one of those ways is your word. And we want to know you and we want to know you through it. And so help us, Father, not just today, but through this study, Lord, help us to know you better. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. This is an amazing, amazing story. It's an amazing text, Jesus confronts these two and says that they are foolish and they are slow to believe. But to believe what? Well, he says there, all that the prophets have spoken. So Jesus here references the prophecies that had been given about the Messiah coming. And he tells these two that they should have known from the Hebrew Scriptures that the Messiah, the Christ, had to suffer and enter into His glory. Jesus is affirming here the prophets. And then, what must have been a wonderful experience, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Truly remarkable. Wonderful to be those two men. Jesus teaching about himself from the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, for the purpose of our study, we have to notice here that Jesus is affirming Scripture. Luke mentions specifically that he began with Moses and all the prophets and that he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So here's our question. What does that entail? What was included in the all the scriptures mentioned here in Luke 24? And we'll get to that, but let's look at a few other texts first. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. I can just read it for you. For whatever was written in 
former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Again, this text affirms previous writings of Scripture, whatever's, whatever's written in former days. And so we want to know, again, what was included in that? In Matthew 24, verse 35, Jesus is is speaking, and He says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. Jesus says here that His own words will remain. Even as heaven and earth are going to pass away, God's word will stand. So again, what constitutes God's word? And then Isaiah 55, verse 11 so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now this text definitely in Isaiah addresses the effectiveness and even the authority of the word of God, and we're going to get to that in a later sermon. But we see here that Isaiah seems to be writing on behalf of God who is saying that his word will go out and it will accomplish everything it is meant to accomplish. So again, we ought to ask when we come across those things, what constitutes God's word that is going out? Now, Hopefully you see here where we're headed and that you're not discouraged by that. And if you are at any point in this series, that's okay. Just just kind of stay with me. I'll be honest, there are probably moments where many will feel nervous or discouraged or challenged as we go through the series. But to get to, to begin to answer the question, I want to want us to go to two texts. So go ahead first and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Another wonderful text that we, we're not going to get into the fullness of it, but if you've been here for years and years, you know this is a favorite of mine. We're just going to look at verses 19 through 21. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. It says this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, I love this text. Peter says here, we have this. We have this prophetic word. And it's, it's exactly what Peter says. It's, it's, it's more certain than the experience that Peter and James and John had on the mountain, which is a massive statement because he's talking about Luke chapter 9 where they ascend to the mountain and Jesus is transfigurated before their eyes. It's where they see Jesus glorified. And here he's saying, we have something more certain, the prophetic word. So he's he's making a massive claim here. But what is the prophetic word? Well, it's definitely the Hebrew Scriptures. 
You see, the, the Christian movement had a canon. And that word canon, by the way, means collection. So when we talk about canonization, it's the bringing together of a collection of books. So the canon of Scripture is the collection of Scripture or books that were recognized as divinely inspired and authorized for use in the community of believers. So the Christian movement, in some sense, had a canon of Scripture at its very beginning. That was prior to the writings of any of the apostles or gospels. Jesus and his disciples had a collection of sacred writings, a canon. They were Jews. And they fully accepted the authority of books that were recognized as the Hebrew Scriptures, what would eventually be included in what we call the Old Testament. In fact, by the time of Jesus, the Hebrew Bible had already been translated into Greek. And Jesus himself quoted from the Greek translation of those Hebrew scriptures along with other New Testament writers. But is that all that Peter is referring to here in 2 Peter 1 when he refers to the prophetic word? Is he only referring to the Hebrew scriptures? I don't think so, and here's why. If you just turn one page over, maybe you don't have to where the way yours is laid out, but in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, he writes this, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures." What is Peter saying here? It's incredible what he's saying here. Peter is referring to Paul's letters that are being passed around. And he's saying, first, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. And we all nod and say, amen. We agree. But let's, let's pause here for a second. This is a good time to remind you, because I want to remind you each and every week, if I can, through this series, the Bible was not written in English and in a Western context. Not one single verse was written in English or in or to a Western context. So what? Well, that means it shouldn't be handled or read as if it was. In 2007, I went to Iraq with some brothers and a sister in Christ. It was a, a mission trip. And when I was there, everything was different for me. People didn't talk the way that I talked. They didn't value the same things that I valued, like punctuality. I didn't understand many of their cultural leanings. I didn't understand the way that they spoke. I felt completely overwhelmed and out of place. And at no point did I feel like I should pretend otherwise. 
that, that I should pretend that for some weird reason they all of a sudden meant exactly what I meant by things and did as I did. That would be incredibly weird and it would be incredibly arrogant. The same was true when I went to El Salvador the following year. Those were cross-cultural cross experiences and I was out of place. I was the one trying to understand the culture and the language. Guys, that is exactly how we should approach the Bible. That's exactly how we should approach the Bible. But most of the time, we don't. We look at the Bible as if some white dude came strolling into our town, drinking an IPA and telling us the story of God. That's how we approach it. And we are in danger of twisting the scriptures when we do that. I've said this over and over, but that shouldn't discourage us. Because go back to Iraq and El Salvador with me. I felt out of place. But what would have happened if I had stayed there? If I had remained? If I spent weeks and then months and then years learning from them? learning their language and their culture, then I wouldn't feel out of place. And gradually, I would learn and begin to understand better and better and better. That's true of the Bible. But we, we have to be willing to spend the time and to learn and to be humble. It's what we mentioned last week in this. The Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. The Bible was written for me, but it wasn't written to me. To go back to 2 Peter, Peter says here that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand, and then that some twist those things. And then this massive statement, as they do the other scriptures. Now, what has Paul or Peter just done? He's affirmed Paul's letters as scripture. Now, that's incredible and helpful and hopeful. But we're still left with this question or these questions, what prophecies, Peter, and what letters? How do we get this collection of letters? Because we know of, of letters of Paul that we have no copies of. If you go to 1 Corinthians, in chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my first letter. He says that in 1 Corinthians, and we may want to correct him and say, no, 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 Paul, this is your first letter. This is 1 Corinthians. No, but he says there, I wrote you another letter before this, and it, it, it kind of seems important. We have no idea what happened in that letter or to that letter. Not only that, in, in Colossians 4, verse 16, Paul says, when this letter to the Colossians has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So where's that letter? And is Peter saying that that one counts too? We don't know. What we know is what we have and we know how we have what we have. 
So let's take some time and work through that. Work through how we got the Bible that makes, or, or the books that make up the Bible that we have. And I'm going to remind you again, I said this last week, some of this series is going to seem like lecture or like a classroom. I am not apologizing for that. I feel like all of this is important for all of us to understand and know. So there's no apology in that, just preparation, okay? Awesome. So let's start with our Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible is a collection of books that was over a thousand years in the making. Now that's a really long time, right? A thousand years in the making of the Hebrew Bible. So we, we, we have to remember that. If you go back on last week's message about genres and how we talked about there are different genres in the Bible and we should approach those genres different, differently. We don't read Proverbs in the same way that we read Galatians. We also need to think about how many changes took place over time. Meanings and messaging, messaging changes over time, especially over a thousand years. So think, think about how words or slang changed just in our own culture since our grandparents' time. Think of how many people in this room have never, ever seen a phone book. Language and communication styles change. Now, the books of the New Testament were written in a very short period of time in comparison to the Old Testament. They were written within about 50 years of Jesus' death. The process of collecting and compiling those books took much longer than that, but writing was about 50 years. And this is a tease for next week that you'll have to wait for, but we don't we actually don't know who produced the final edition of many books in the Hebrew Bible. We don't know who made the final edition of many books of the Hebrew Bible. We don't have any original copies of the Old or the New Testament books. So what do we have? Well, there are three main groups of manuscripts that we have today that 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 what you're holding in your hands has come from. And those take us closer and closer to the originals. The Masoretic text is a collection of Hebrew manuscripts that was developed over the course of about 500 years by a group of Jewish scholars. Those scholars were kind of the guardians of the biblical text throughout a huge portion, portion of Jewish history. And they lived during the time between 500 and 1,000 A.D., so at least 500 years since Jesus walked on the earth is when they were living. And they were known to be hyper-meticulous with the care of the texts of the Hebrew Scriptures, and their work uh, culminated into uh, this crown jewel of the Masoretic Text family, which is known as the Leningrad Codex. Codex is a collection of papyrus or parchment folded or otherwise held together. And, and, and this manuscript, the Leningrad Codex, dates back to 1008 AD. Okay, so it is the most complete collection of the Masoretic text. 
But we ought to notice that that means that there's a 700-year gap or more between the making of the Hebrew Bible and the Masoretes. So the question is, can we get any closer to the original manuscripts? And the answer to that is yes. The next group of manuscripts that we have is a group of manuscripts connected to what is called the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is probably a word you've heard of. I've already referred to it this morning. It's an extremely important but complicated set of evidence. It is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was made between 200 and 100 B.C. So you think about this. The Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, existed before Jesus was born and before the Christian movement began. You can imagine that there was a need for the Bible in Greek. The Romans are taking over. Jewish people are spread throughout the Roman Empire. So you have Jewish people who are growing up and speaking Greek. And there came a need. Let's produce a Bible. Let's produce scriptures in Greek so that people can keep reading the scriptures. The Septuagint was not a Hebrew manuscript but was made from Hebrew manuscripts. It's a translation of texts from one language to another. Now, this is important. There are actually a lot of differences between the Septuagint text and the Masoretic text. Some of those differences are minor, they're insignificant, but some are actually pretty significant. And what we find, and we'll talk about this more next week, we have we have commentary in the text, notes that were made by scribes along the way who were trying to help the next generation of readers to understand the book of Ezekiel or whatever book they're, they're working through. And so they would make notes for the next generation and then those notes within the text and those are, are written there and then those notes are copied and copied and included included in the actual scriptures. One quick example of that is if you turn to, to Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 2 through 11. Follow along here. Jeremiah chapter 10 beginning with verse 2. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold, they fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple, 
They are all the work of skilled men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Now, this is a description in the text of the making of an ancient idol. But notice something. What has been added to the passage in the Masoretic text, which is what this is coming from, what has been added to the passage in the Masoretic text? It's what we see in verses 6, 7, and 10. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. Verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Those, those inclusions were not actually in the original Hebrew text. And you can even just on your own, look at it without those and see how it reads differently and better. Verse, uh, the end of verse 5, do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. Verse 8, they are both stupid and foolish, the instruction of idols and wood, um, the, the, the instruction of idols is but wood. Now that doesn't mean that the Masoretes themselves added these things, but they did preserve a version of the text that had additions made to it. It was a complicated period of textual history. Now you may, you may inside of you be like, it's in my Bible. So how can you possibly say that? Well, we have proof. We have evidence of it. Because as I mentioned, there's not just one groupings of texts. We have two witnesses to this being true. Both the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls that we will get to do not include these verses. Now, for some, this may feel shocking or troubling, and that's okay. That's part of the process of learning the human history of how we got the Bible. Honestly, that may be happening for some of you right now, and let that be a part of your learning. Let that be a part of your learning. So consider this particular, or these particular additions to the Scriptures, okay, what we see just here in Jeremiah. Is it distorting the message or the theology of the text? Is the message being changed in any way? Is there anything in those additions that you wouldn't learn from the book of Psalms? And the answer to those questions is no, absolutely not. A lot, of, a lot of times additions to the original text are not just some scribe adding whatever they please. Rather, they're quotations from other parts of the Bible. And that sort of thing happens a lot throughout the Old Testament. Does it make it complicated? It makes it very complicated. But it's sort of like a cross-referencing note that some people added along the way for the sake of clarity and historical record written in a time when more than 90% of the population was illiterate and depended upon the teachers and scribes to preserve and teach these writings to them accurately. And so what happens is you have these notes that, that the scribes put in to help explain but those got copied in as a part of the text. 
The last grouping we'll look at, the closest we have for manuscripts, are the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were discovered in the 40s and 50s. Now, most of you have probably heard of this um, and, and, and it happening. There are a number of caves near the Dead Sea, and those caves were discovered, and thousands of Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible that predate the Masoretic text and are of the same time period as the Septuagint were found in these caves. And they're not a Greek translation. They're a Hebrew manuscript from the time of the Septuagint. And they didn't just find biblical manuscripts on, on the floor of this cave. They found other writings as well. But, but in these caves, bits and pieces, literally, of every single Old Testament book except for Esther were found. And that is amazing. That's a gift. Now, it doesn't mean that Esther doesn't belong, because we also need to understand that some of the books represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls were like a tiny little bit of that whole book. But think about this. These pieces were scattered all over the cave floor, and so these Catholic scholars had to sort all of them, thousands of them, and put them where they belong piece by piece. So it would be it would be like someone coming up to you and just dumping out thousands of puzzle pieces in front of you and saying, grab some friends, I'm taking the box top and see what you can do with it. It would be difficult. And some of those pieces match the Masoretic text and some the Septuagint, and that's how they're able to put them together. But this is a complicated time in history of Bible copying. The New Testament is a little different. People who collected the books of the New Testament copied them, shared them, and used them in worship and preaching. The consolidation of the New Testament canon was a gradual process as the churches came to agree on a definitive list of Christian writings. Remember, we have help from Peter here. The second century church had um, held the Jewish scriptures, usually the Septuagint, they held the Jewish scriptures, the words of Jesus, whether that was through oral tradition, which was most often the case, or writings, and apostolic instruction, especially Peter, Paul, and John, in high regard. They held these writings in high regard. But then we come to the second or the mid-second century, and the four gospels and the Pauline letter collection were widely used and highly regarded in worship and teaching. These are the primary writings that are used by the apostolic fathers and early Christian apologists. And just as a quick side note, if you were here a year ago when we went through the study on the creeds in the summer, go to those guys. Go to the apostolic fathers. Go to the ones and learn from them. That's how we have the orthodoxy that we have today. But there was a criteria for a Christian writing to become a part of the canon. The first is apostolic. Was it written by an apostle or an apostolic companion? Second was antiquity. Can it be dated to the apostolic era? Third was orthodoxy. Did it correspond with the church's teaching? And then fourth, catholicity. 
was it used widely in all the churches. So the crystallization of the process of the canon took place in the late 4th century. And that's a while. It didn't happen in the time of Paul. It didn't happen in the time of John. It was much later. Athanasius's 39th festal letter, which was in A.D. 367, as well as the councils of Hippo Regius in A.D. 393 and Carthage in A.D. 397, listed the 27 books that we have in our current New Testament as canonical. Now, that's a lot of info. I get it. But my hope is that that's helpful. Because our desire as we go through this is that we have hope in what we look to. Hopefully this is getting your brain stirring to learn more about this. But let's, let's remember as we head toward our time taking the Lord's Supper. All of these things have been written for a purpose. All of the things that we have have been written for a purpose. Romans 15, 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. As we move forward through this series, the next two weeks, let's seek hope. As you consider Peter's words that we looked at, Let's have hope. Let's seek hope in the person of Jesus. That's who the scriptures are meant to point us to. And so let's seek him and let's trust in him as we do it. Luke chapter 22, Jesus is with the um, disciples in the upper room on his last day, the last hours of his life on earth. And in verses 14 through 20, it says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus earnestly desired to eat with the disciples, to share this meal with the disciples. And that has not changed. He still does. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul tells us, as often as you eat the bread, you participate in the body of Christ. You have fellowship in the body of Christ or with the body of Christ. As often as you drink the cup, you participate in the blood of Christ. You have fellowship with Christ through the taking of the bread and the drinking of the cup. You have fellowship. And just as much as Jesus longed or 
just as much as he earnestly desired to have that fellowship with his disciples around the table, he desires it today. That's a gift. It's a blessing. And so as we come to get the bread and the cup and we go back to our seats and wait to take it together, let's remember who we are remembering. Let's think on Christ, the one who desires to feast with us, the one who came to us. Let's have hope in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're so kind to us, Lord. Gracious, Lord. I pray for your help. Thank you for Jesus, for the promise that we have in him. And even as we're going through this, Lord, and the the parts of this series that are difficult or um, maybe that cause anxiety or, uh, Lord, even hard to understand. God, I pray for your help. You've entrusted us with your word. And you say through it that we're to have hope. And we don't want to come to it in a way that is twisting it. We don't want to come to it in a way with expectations that we ought not to have or approach it in a a way that is selfish or treating it as what it is not. And so help us through this, Lord, that we would, in the end, love you and know you and trust you even better. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.